0: Marita's Bargain essay by Malcolm Gladwell in the mid 1990s, an experimental public school called the KIPP Academy opened on the fourth floor of the Lou Gehrig junior high school in New York city. Lou Gehrig is the seventh school district, otherwise known as the South Bronx, one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York city. It is a squat gray 1960s era building across the street from a bleak looking group of high rises. A few blocks over is the grand concourse, the borough's main thoroughfare. These are not streets that you would happily walk down alone after dark. KIPP is a middle school. Classes are large. The fifth grade has two sections of 35 students each. There are no entrance exams or admissions requirements. Students are chosen by lottery with any fourth grader living in the Bronx eligible to apply. Roughly half of the students are African-American. The rest are Hispanic. Three-quarters of the children come from single-parent homes. 90% qualify for free or reduced lunch which is to say that their families earn so little that the federal government chips in so the children can eat properly at lunchtime. Kip Academy seems like the kind of school in the kind of neighborhood with the kind of student that would make educators despair except that the minute you enter the building it's clear that something is different. The students walk quietly down the hallways in single file in the classroom, they are taught to turn and address anyone talking to them in a protocol known as S Slant. Smile, sit up, listen, ask questions, nod when being spoken to, and track with your eyes. On the walls of the school's corridors are hundreds of pennants from the colleges that KIPP graduates have gone on to attend. Last year, hundreds of families from across the Bronx entered the lottery for KIPP's two 5th grade classes. It is no exaggeration to say that just over 10 years into its existence, KIPP has become one of the most desirable public schools in New York City. What KIPP is most famous for is mathematics. In the South Bronx, only 16% of all middle school students are performing at or above their grade level in math. But at KIPP, by the end of fifth grade, many of the students call math their favorite subject. In seventh grade, KIPP students start high school algebra, and by the end of 8th grade, 84% of the students are performing at or above their grade level, which is to say that this motley group of randomly chosen, lower-income kids from dingy apartments in one of the country's worst neighborhoods, whose parents, in an overwhelming number of cases, never set foot in a college, do as well in mathematics as the privileged 8th graders of America's wealthy suburbs. Our kids' reading is on point," said David Levine, who founded KIPP with a fellow teacher, Michael Feinberg, in 1994. They struggle a little bit with writing skills, but when they leave here, they rock in math. There are now more than 50 KIPP schools across the United States, with more on the way. The KIPP program represents one of the most promising new educational philosophies in the United States. But its success is best understood not in terms of its curriculum, its teachers, its resources, or some kind of institutional innovation. KIPP is, rather, an organization that has succeeded by taking the idea of cultural legacies seriously. In the early 19th century, a group of reformers set out to establish a system of public education in the United States. What passed for public school at the time was a haphazard assortment of locally run One-room schoolhouses and overcrowded urban classrooms scattered across the country. In rural areas, schools closed in the spring and fall and ran all summer long, so that children could help out in the busy planting and harvesting seasons. In the city, many schools mirrored the long and chaotic schedules of the children's working class parents. The reformers wanted to make sure that all children went to school and that public school was comprehensive meaning that all children got enough schooling to learn how to read and write and do basic arithmetic and function as productive citizens. But as historian Kenneth Gold has pointed out, the early educational reformers were also tremendously concerned that children not get too much schooling. In 1871, for example, the US Commissioner of Education published a report by Edward Jarvis on the relation to education and insanity. Jarvis had studied 1,700 cases of insanity and concluded that overstudy was responsible for 205 of them. Education lays the foundation of a large portion of the causes of mental disorder, Jarvis wrote. Similarly, the pioneer of public education in Massachusetts, Horace Mann, believed that working students too hard would create a most pernicious influence upon character and habits. Not infrequently is health itself destroyed by overstimulating the mind. In the educational journals of the day, there were constant worries about overtaxing students or blunting their natural abilities through too much schoolwork. The reformers, Gold writes, strove for ways to reduce time spent studying because long periods of respite could save the mind from injury. Hence the elimination of Saturday classes, the shortening of the school day, and the lengthening of vacation. All of which occurred over the course of the 19th century. Teachers were cautioned that when students are required to study, their bodies should not be exhausted by long confinement, nor their minds bewildered by prolonged application. Rest also presented particular opportunities for strengthening the cognitive and analytical skills. As one contributor to the Massa- Massachusetts teacher suggested, "It is when thus relieved from the state of tension belonging to actual study." that boys and girls, as well as men and women, acquire the habit of thought and reflection, and form their own conclusions, independently of what they are taught and at the authority of others. This idea that effort must be balanced by rest could not be more different from the Asian notions about study and work, of course. But then again, the Asian worldview was shaped by the rice paddy. In the Pearl River Delta, the rice farmer planted two and sometimes three crops a year, The land was fallow only briefly. In fact, one of the singular features of rice cultivation is that because of the nutrients carried by the water used in irrigation, the more of a plot of land is cultivated, the more fertile it gets. But you see, in Western agriculture, the opposite is true. Unless a wheat or cornfield is left to fallow every few years, the soil becomes exhausted. Every winter, fields are empty. The hard labor of spring planting and fall harvesting is followed and like clockwork by the slower pace of summer and winter. This is the logic that reformers applied to the cultivation of young minds. We formulate new ideas by analogy, working from what we know towards what we don't know. And what the reformers knew were the rhythms of the agricultural seasons. A mind must be cultivated, but not too much, lest it be exhausted. And what was the remedy for the dangers of exhaustion? The long summer vacation, a peculiar and distinctively American legacy that has had profound consequences for the learning patterns of the students of the present day. Summer vacation is a topic seldom mentioned in American educational debates. It is considered a permanent feature of school life, like high school football or the senior prom. But take a look at the following sets of elementary school test score results and see if your faith in the value of long summer holidays isn't profoundly shaken. These numbers come from a research led by the John Hopkins University Sociologist, Carl Alexander. Alexander tracked the progress of 650 first graders from the Baltimore public school system, looking at how well they scored on a widely used math and reading skills exam, called the California Achievement Test. These are reading scores for the first five years of elementary school, broken down by socioeconomic class, low, middle, and high. So look at the first column. The students start in fifth grade with a meaningful but not overwhelming differences in their knowledge, okay? And their ability. So we can see first grade, the lower class has 329 as their reading score, and the upper class has 361 as their score. But then look what happens, okay? So they have 32 point advantage over the poor income students, okay? And by the way, the first graders from the poor homes in Baltimore are really poor. And then look at the fifth grade column. By that point, four years later, that 32 point gap has almost doubled. This is an achievement gap. And it's a phenomenon that's been observed over and over and over again. And typically people think of one of two responses. The first one is that the poor kids simply don't have the same ability to learn as the children from more privileged backgrounds. They're just not as smart. The second, slightly more optimistic conclusion is that in some way, our schools are failing poor children. We simply aren't doing a good enough job of teaching them the skills they need. But here's where Alexander's study gets interesting because it turns out that neither of those explanations rings true. You see, the city of Baltimore didn't give its kids the California Achievement Test just at the end of every school year in June, it also gave them in September too, just after summer vacation ended. What Alexander realized is that the second set of test results allowed him to do a slightly different analysis. If you looked at the difference between the score a student got at the beginning of the school year in September and the score he or she got the following June, Alexander could measure precisely how much that student learned over the school year. And if he looked at the difference between a student's score in June, and then their score that following September, he could see how much the student learned over the course of the summer. In other words, he could figure out, at least in part, how much of the achievement gap is the result of things that happened during the school year, and how much of it has to do with what happens during those summer vacations. So let's start with the school year gains. So the table you guys see, it shows how many points students' test scores rose from the time they started classes in September until they stopped in June, okay? And the total column represents their cumulative classroom learning from all five years of elementary school. So if we look at this, it's amazing. So second, fourth, and fifth grade, the lower class students outperformed the upper class students. And not just by a margin either. Here's a completely different story from the one suggested by the first table. The first set of test results made it look like low-income kids were somehow failing in their classroom. But here, we see that that's not true. Look at the total column. Over the course of five years of elementary school, poor kids outlearned the wealthier kids 189 points to 184 points. They lag behind the middle-class kids by only a modest amount, and in fact, in one year, second grade, They learn more than middle- or upper-class kids. Next, let's see what happens if we look at just how reading scores change during summer vacation. Do you see the difference? So look at the first column which measures what happens over the summer after first grade. The wealthy kids come back and their reading scores have jumped more than 15 points. But the poor kids come back from the holidays and their reading scores have dropped almost four points. The poor kids might outlearn the rich kids during the school year but during the summer is when they fall so far behind. Now look at the last column, which holds up all the summer gains from first grade through fifth grade. The reading scores of the poor kids only go up by .26 points, that's a fourth of a point. When it comes to reading skills, poor kids learn nothing when they're not in school. The reading scores of the rich kids, by contrast, go up by a whopping 52.49 points. Virtually all of the advantage that wealthy students have over poor students is the result of differences in the way privileged kids learn when they're not in school. What Alexander's work suggests is that the way in which education has been discussed in the United States is backwards. An enormous amount of time is spent talking about reducing class size, rewriting curricula, buying every student a shiny new laptop, and increasing school funding, of course. All of which assumes that there's something fundamentally wrong with the job that schools are already doing. But if we look back at that second table, which shows what happens between September and June, schools work. The only problem with school for the kids that aren't achieving is that there isn't enough of it. Alexander, in fact, has done a very simple calculation to demonstrate what would happen if the children of Baltimore went to school year round. The answer is that the poor kids and the wealthy kids would, by the end of elementary school, be doing math and reading at almost the exact same level. Suddenly, the causes of Asian math superiority become even more obvious, right? Students in Asian schools don't have long summer vacations, why would they? Cultures that believe that their route to success lies in rising before dawn, 360 days a year, they're scarcely gonna give their kids three straight months off in the summer, right? The school year in the United States is on average 180 days long. The South Korean school year is 220 days long. And the Japanese school year is 243 days long. One of the questions asked of test takers on a recent math test given to students around the world was how many of the algebra, calculus, and geometry questions covered subject matter that they had previously learned in class. For Japanese 12th graders, the answer was 92% and that's the value of going to school 243 days a year. You have the time to learn everything that needs to be learned, and you have less time to unlearn it. For American 12th graders, the comparable figure was 54%. For its poorest students, America doesn't have a school problem. It has a summer vacation problem, and that's the problem the KIPP school set out to solve. They decided to bring the lessons of the rice paddy to the American inner city. They start school at 7.25, says David Levine of the students of the Bronx KIPP Academy. They all do a course called Thinking Skills until 7.55. Then they do 90 minutes of English, 90 minutes of math, except in fifth grade where they do two hours of math. They do an hour of science, an hour of history, and at least twice a week, they do an hour of music. And then on top of that, they have an hour and 15 minutes of orchestra. Everyone does orchestra. The day goes from 7.25 until 5 p.m. After 5, there are homework clubs, detention, and sports teams. There are kids here from 7.25 in the morning until 7 p.m. If you take an average day and you take out lunch and recess, our kids are spending 50 to 60 percent more time learning than the traditional public school student. Levine was standing in the school's main hallway. It was lunchtime, and the students were trooping by quietly in orderly lines all of them with their Kip Academy shirts. Levin stopped a, girl who, stopped a girl whose shirt tail was out. Do me a favor when you get a chance, he called out, miming a tucking in moment. He continued, Saturdays they come in nine to one. In the summer, it's eight to two. By summer, Levine was referencing to the fact that KIP students do three extra weeks of school in July. So in those weeks in July, the students show up from eight to two. These are after all, precisely the kind of lower income students that Alexander identified as losing grounds over the long summer vacation. So Kip's response is to simply not have a long summer vacation. The beginning is hard, he went on. By the end of the day, they are restless. Part of it is endurance, part of it is motivation. Part of it is incentives and rewards and fun stuff. And part of it is good old fashioned discipline. You throw all of that into the stew. We talk a lot here about great and self-control. The kids know what those words mean. Levine walked down the hall to an eighth grade math class and stood quietly in the back. A student named Aaron was at the front of the class, working his way through a problem from the page of thinking skills exercises that all KIPP students are required to do each morning. The teacher, a ponytailed man in his 30s, named Frank Corcoran, sat in his chair to the side, only occasionally jumping in to guide the discussion. It was the kind of scene repeated every day in American classrooms, with one difference. Aaron was up at the front, working on that single problem for 20 minutes, methodically, carefully, with the participation of class, working his way through not just the answer, but also the question of whether there was more than one way to get that answer. What the extra time does is allow for a more relaxed atmosphere, Corcoran said. After class is over, I find that the problem with math education is the sink or swim approach. Everything is rapid fire, and the kids who get it first are the ones who are rewarded. So there comes to be a feeling that there are people who can do math and there are people who can't do math and are not math people. I think that extended amount of time gives you a chance as a teacher to explain things and more time for the kids to sit and digest everything that's going on, to review and to do things at a much slower pace. It seems counterintuitive, but we do things at a slower pace and as a result, we get through a lot more. There's a lot more retention, better understanding of the material, It lets me be a little bit more relaxed. We have time to have games. Kids can ask any questions they want. And if I'm explaining something, I don't feel pressed for time. I can go back over material and not feel time pressure. The extra time gave Cochran the chance to make mathematics meaningful, to let his students see the clear relationship between effort and reward. On the walls of the classroom were dozens of certificates from the New York State Regents exam, testifying to the first class honors for Cochrane students. We had a girl in this class, Cochran said. She was a horrible math student in fifth grade. She cried every Saturday when we did remedial stuff. Huge tears and tears. At the memory, Cochran got a little more emotional himself. He looked down. She just emailed us a couple weeks ago. She's in college now. She's an accounting major. The story of the miracle school that transforms losers into winners is, of course, all too familiar. It's the stuff of inspirational books and sentimental Hollywood movies. But the reality of places like KIPP is a good deal less glamorous than that. To get a sense of what 50 to 60% more learning time means, listen to the typical day in the life of a KIPP student. The student's name is Marita. She is an only child who lives in a single-parent home. Her mother never went to college. The two of them share a one-bedroom apartment in the Bronx. Marita used to go to a parochial school down the street from her home until her mother heard of Kip. When I was in the fourth grade, me and one of my other friends, Tanya, we both applied to Kip, Marita said. I remember Miss Owens. She interviewed me, and the way she was saying it made it sound so hard, I thought I was going to prison. I almost started crying, and then she was like, if you don't want to sign this, you don't have to sign this. But then my mom was like, right there, so I signed it. And with that, her life changed keep in mind while reading that marita is only 12 years old well i wake up at 5:45 a.m to get a head start she says i brush my teeth shower i get some breakfast at school if i'm running late i usually get yelled at because i'm taking too long i meet my friends diana and stephen at the bus stop and we get the number one bus A 5.45 wake-up is fairly typical of KIPP students, especially given the long bus and subway commutes that many have to get to school. Levine at one point went into a 7th grade music class with 70 kids in it and asked for a show of hands on when students woke up. A handful said they woke up after 6, three-quarters said they woke up before 6, and almost half said they woke up before 5.30. One classmate of Marita's, a boy named Jose, said he sometimes wakes up at 3 or 4 a.m., finishes his homework from the night before, and then goes back to sleep for a bit. Marita went on. I leave school at 5 p.m., and if I don't lollygag around, then I will get home around 5.30. Then I say hi to my mom real quick and start doing my homework. And if it's not a lot of homework that day, it'll take me two or three hours, and I'll be done around 9 p.m. Or if we have essays, then I'll be done like 10 or 10.30 p.m. Sometimes my mom makes me break for dinner. I tell her I want to go straight through, but she says I have to eat. So around 8, she makes me break for dinner for like half an hour, and then I get back to work. Then, usually after that, my mom wants to hear about school. But I got to make it quick because I have to get in bed by 11 p.m. So I get all my stuff ready, and then I get into bed, and I tell her all about the day and what happened. And by the time we're finished, she's on the brink of sleeping. So that's probably around 11.15 And then I go to sleep, and the next morning, we do it all over again. We are in the same room, but it's a huge bedroom, and you can split it into two. And we have beds on other sides. Me and my mom are very close. She spoke in the matter-of-fact way of children who have no way of knowing how unusual their situation is. She had the hours of a lawyer trying to make partner or of a medical resident. All that was missing were the dark circles under her eyes and a steaming cup of coffee. Except she was too young for either. Sometimes I don't go to sleep when I'm supposed to, Marita continued. I go to sleep at like 12 o'clock and the next afternoon it'll hit me and I'll doze off in class. But then I had to wake up because I had to get the information. I remember I was in one class and I was dozing off and the teacher saw me and said, can I talk to you after class? And he asked me, why were you dozing off? And I told him I went to sleep late and he was like, well, you need to go to sleep earlier. Marita's life is not the life of a typical 12-year-old, nor is it what we would necessarily wish for a 12-year-old. Children, we like to believe, should have time to play and dream and sleep. Marita has responsibilities. Her community does not give her what she needs. So what does she have to do? Give up her evenings and weekends with friends, all of the elements of her old world, and replace them with Kip. Here's Marita again, in a passage that is a little short of heartbreaking. Well when we first started fifth grade I used to have contact with one of the girls from my old school and whenever I left school on Friday I would go to her house and stay there until my mom would get home from work. So I would be at her house and I would be doing my homework and she would never have any homework and she would say oh my god you stay there late. Then she said she wanted to go to Kip but then she'd say that Kip is too hard and she didn't want to do it. And I would say everyone says that Kip is hard but once you get the hang of it it's not really that hard. She told me, it's because you're smart. And I said, no, every one of us is smart. And she was so discouraged because we stayed until five and we had a lot of homework. And I told her that us having a lot of homework helps us do better in class. And she told me she didn't want to hear the whole speech. All my friends are now from KIPP. Is this a lot to ask of a child? It is, but think of things from Marita's perspective. She has made a bargain with her school. She will get up at 5.45 in the morning, go in on Saturdays and do homework until 11 at night. And in return, KIPP promises that it will take kids like her who are stuck in poverty and give them a chance to get out. It will get 84% of them up to or above their grade level in mathematics. On the strength of that performance, 90% of KIPP students get scholarships to private or parochial high schools instead of having to attend their own desultory high schools in the Bronx. And on the strength of that high school experience, more than 80% of KIPP graduates will go on to college, in many, many cases being the first in their family to do so. Marita doesn't need a brand new school with acres of playing fields and gleaming facilities. She doesn't need a laptop, a smaller class, a teacher with a PhD, or a bigger apartment. She doesn't need a higher IQ or a mind as, as quick as Chris Lanigan's. All those things would be nice, of course, but they missed the point. Marita just needed a chance. And look at the chance she was given. Someone brought a little bit of the rice paddy to the South Bronx and explained to her the miracle of meaningful work. The end.